0: Oh god, there's some movies to talk about, let me tell you. Between Ruby Gilman, Joyride, No Hard Feelings, Tsunami, The Wrath Cometh, and then the whole Mission Impossible franchise. we got a lot going on this week, let me tell you, so you're definitely going to want to stick around for this one. So, welcome to Movies Are Good, I'm your host, Pie Man. We've got a lot, yeah, just a lot this week, okay? It's a lot. First, there's a few different films to catch up on, some new ones going on, stuff like that still. So, we're going to start with Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, or DreamWorks' answer to Onward, as I call it. But if instead of going on an adventure, like, imagine they just kind of went to school and got bullied for being different. It's kind of like if Lizzie McGuire was nerdier and blue, yeah. So, Ruby and her friends, who all talk like Liza Koshy, oh my god, one of them's actually Liza Koshy. How is she getting that much voiceover work? Like, seriously, this, Transformers, like, it's too much. Um, It's too much Liza Koshy in mainstream media. Anyway, her and her friends, they can't go to prom because it's on a boat. Who the fuck has their prom on a boat? High school kids, like, getting drunk for the first time? And you let them do that when they can easily fall into the dark blackness of a starry night ocean, never to return? Alright, alright, fair enough. Um, so they acknowledge, like early on, that prom is super dumb. And then they make a lot of the film about it. And Ruby can't go because she's not allowed in the ocean. Her family is very strict about never going into the ocean. I have to question why they live in a town called Oceanside, which is right now. Okay. And it does get questioned. Like, somebody says to the mom, Why would you live next to the ocean? And her mom says... We need to stay moist. (laughs) Which was actually kind of funny. And kind of, I don't know, weird. Um, Yeah, so, new girl turns up. She looks suspiciously like Ariel. Is a mermaid, but mermaids are evil. Krakens are good. Why? Because this is a metaphor for racism. It is exhausting how similar so many animated movies are nowadays for me. Because they're all trying to teach kids the same three things over and over. And this, like many of them, is basically focusing on the love you yourself and love others even if they're different and I mean it's not like it's not a good lesson to teach kids so I can't shit on it for that but like god they're all just so similar and they just teach it in all the same ways and it's so frustrating anyway so when she gets wet she turns into a big giant kraken she's a grower not a shower you know? <laughs> <coughs> sorry um so I I don't get the point here that like they're hiding and living amongst the humans and pretending to be humans right but they're blue like, they're blue. Their ears are weird. Their arms are super stretchy. Just regularly, even when they don't get wet and turn into giant krakens, so like it's very unclear early on. <laughs> like <laughs> it took me a while to go, oh wait, the humans don't know they're krakens, right? I see, okay. Um, so yeah, there's that, and that was annoying and weird, and um, I don't get why they were designed like that. If they were meant to be, but it doesn't matter. Um, so anyway, yeah, she turns into a giant kraken, and so does her mom and her grandmother, and it's a whole, like, family thing where only the women in the family do it. So it's turning red. It's it's onward mixed with turning red. But also a little bit the Princess Diaries, because her grandmother turns up long lost from the ocean. She didn't know she exists and is the queen of the kraken land. It's unclear. She's not like queen of the whole ocean, I don't think. She's just queen of the kraken land part. Uh, or something, yeah. Everything is explained badly. That's that's one thing about this. It does not, it it introduces a lot of things, and just kind of skips right over a lot of stuff, and it's super frustrating. So it's kind of onward, plus Turning Red, plus The Princess Diaries, making for a reasonably bad movie, yeah. There's nothing that funny about it, there's nothing original or even interesting about the story. It's the constituent parts of something we've seen done better a whole bunch of times. The writing isn't great. The animation is okay, but down a lot from DreamWorks' last effort and Puss in Boots' last wish. This feels and kind of looks a lot more like their generally subpar but not terrible efforts. Like Home. Or Turbo. mister Peabody and Sherman. Boss Baby. Captain Underpants. Abominable. Boy, DreamWorks! They do have a lot of mediocrity amongst their ranks. It's kind of like there's like two teams there. I'm guessing maybe there is. And they have, like, an A team and a B team. And they just keep shipping these movies under the same banner, even though they are so clearly, ridiculously down a level from things like Puss and Boots Last Wish. I just... I, I wish I knew ahead of time which it was going to be. Not that I ever looked at the promotional material for Ruby Killman Teenage Dragon and thought this is going to be a good one, but, you know. Um, so, yeah. The, 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 our grandmother says, Hey mermaids are evil, and she goes, no, generational racism, you must be wrong, and then she's not wrong, so I don't know what lessons this is trying to teach, it's it's more focusing on the, te- like, listen to your parents' lesson, but, you know, also, generational racism is good, uh, I don't know, it's just a mess of morals and ideas that are all half-baked, and I didn't enjoy it, and also, after making all the promotional material about Kraken is good. Mermaid is bad. Oh, what a twist. It then takes over an hour into the movie before they go, "Uh uh-oh, big twist, the mermaid's evil. And that's just super annoying as well because it's like, okay. They really treat it like it's meant to be this, betrayal, big twist, whoa. It's not. (laughs) It's just not. (laughs) So that was super frustrating. But if you thought that was dumb, don't worry. Ruby is also going to end a century's worth of, of oceanic monster danger by using, wait for it, high school maths. Her big line is, trust me, I'm a mathlete. I just don't think I could have dealt with this film if it was 20 minutes longer, so thank goodness it was at least pretty short. Um, But don't forget to take away one final lesson from the very end of the film, of course. Yes, this is what really got me and really pissed me off about it, okay? Because after she defeats the mermaid, goes back to school, and everyone likes her now, they focus down on the now ruby Isn't in the shadows anymore. She's a real leading lady because she has superpowers So teenagers out there in the world don't worry if you're feeling kind of invisible left out like you don't have your own story Get superpowers you fucking nerd That's really yeah, no, that's all I've got for you, so I'm giving Ruby Gilman Teenage Kraken four out of ten It's just kind of crap And next we're moving on to joyride (laughs) joyride is brand new and uh, it feels like much like ruby gilman was made because we just need an animated movie this year joyride was made because we just need a female-led raunchy comedy this year Great, because the raunchy childhood friends go somewhere but aren't sure if they should really even be in each other's lives anymore because one is a dumb piece of shit adult child? Hasn't already been done to death. Oh, no, wait, no, it definitely has, yeah. So Audrey was adopted, but she is going to Asia for a business trip and to meet her birth mom. What? And she brings with her the best friend who, you guessed it, is a giant big dumb child. As well as her college roommate who's a fancy actress and the creepy weirdo one. It's a very bridesmaid style cast, yeah, which means a bunch of fairly one-dimensional female characters just kind of thrown together for a trip somewhere. No, listen, hear me out, okay? It's, like, I knew it was going to be a raunchy comedy, okay? I knew it was like a raunchy R-rated comedy thing. It still surprised me how raunchy it is. Real raunchy. You know? It's got all the classics, like accidentally taking drugs, weird sex-related stuff, throwing up, drunk, the whole nines. But I, I, I don't know. Hmm. There's something else there, and I didn't expect myself to be saying this after the first 20 minutes, because it really did seem set up for them to be very one-dimensional characters. But there's a lot of real heart to this. And I kind of, you know, you, you say that, and... They have that in all of these, you know, all of these raunchy comedies. There's, like, that moment near the, kind of in the middle of the second act, there's, like, some emotion. And then at the end of the second act, there's the big argument breakup. And then the third act, they get back together and it's all nice and happy by the end, right? Yes, that is precisely what happens here. But the the emotion throughout in the, the acting performance is given. It's actually good. It's well done. It's well executed. I did not expect that on the basis on the from what we got at the beginning, didn't see it coming at all. So that was impressive to a degree. Um it's just I don't know. Yeah. The the fact that they mix the real emotion and the really good parts with like an actual K pop version of WAP shots from the inside of a vagina. And just a ridiculous, crazy level of horniness in general. Yeah. To be fair Probably still not as much horniness as in male raunchy comedies, but those things are just awful. I, I don't like those films equally. This was a little bit far for me along the just gross out weird comedy spectrum. It still had a lot of good stuff in there. It still got a lot of funny moments and some good heartfelt moments. It's just some of it makes me really go like, Ugh. <laughs> like, come on. You're not doing this for anything other than, like, silly shock value comedy at this stage, you know? Um, so some of the labs felt cheap. Some of them were good. It's it's a real mixed bag of a film, okay? I never thought I'd see the day a film with a devil tattooed onto a vagina would get over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> like, I don't love it, personally. I am surprised that critics did to that level. yeah. But um, it's got it's got you know the kind of story you expect, adult friends get together, realize how different they all are and are, how different their lives are, catch up, but then there's like funny things. They're like, ah, you're you're not having sex with your fiance because he's a weird Christian guy, and you're weird. That's yeah, Dead Eye's whole thing is just she's weird. <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean, it, it is a nice story, and the heartfelt aspects are good, but at the same time, you've got to keep in mind that it is just the same story that 90% of adult comedies have, you know, to some degree. <laughs> and so it's kind of, I don't know, it's annoying, and then when the second act drama happens, and you're like, Ugh, and then they get back together, you're like, yeah. It's got this sense of inevitability to it. Comedies get away with that more than some other films would, that you just know precisely precisely to the degree where the plot is going, but it's fine. Um, It's just the old friends fall apart at the end of the second act and have a big public meltdown fight after a fun trip somehow turns into everybody's lives falling apart. Main character realizes they're selfish or wrong or whatever, and then they literally just solve everything with more randomly, very public displays of affection. Like, it's weird. But, um... (laughs) I don't know, maybe I'm just starting to think that the raunchy comedy genre is just something I'm not as into as I used to be. But I just, I think it, it, it's about degrees. It's about, is this a raunchy comedy or is this just fucking mental for the sake of being mental? And sometimes you get away with that and it works quite well. This one, it, it yeah, there's, there's no better way to describe it than a mixed bag. Some of it worked for me, some of it just didn't. Um, it's got a lot of laugh out loud moments. It wasn't really something I would think of ever watching again. Uh, it has got like the third act and when they brought in Daniel Day came randomly to be this like very serious character. <laughs> I mean because he's awesome. Uh, that was really good. And Ashley Park surprised me because I didn't think she would be that good at the actual serious part and she really was. So they're kind of tender moments there together about her birth mom. That was really nice. Um, yeah, I don't know. They just kind of wrap everything up so perfectly at the end. It's a little too neat. For me, I'm not going to proclaim this as, like, a work of art. I am shocked that it's been enjoyed so much. Like, I really expected it had to be, like, a work of genius on some level or something very different to be getting the kind of reviews it's getting. It's not. It's just that we've not seen it done before in a mainstream movie with Asian women. You know? I don't think. It's the same way that, like, bros got, like, huge ovation for being, like, a real mainstream sort of gay romantic comedy. And that's like, wow. As much as, like, it, it feels like it's been done before, it hasn't been done before, right? But it, the actual story and stuff was 90% just what you would see in a romantic comedy. So it's like, yeah, these films are fine, but everybody's, like, going going way overboard on the praise to go yay for <laughs> representation and stuff, and that's fine. It's not, It's it's, you know, but... There's nothing bad about this movie, so I can't give it a bad review as such. I'm giving Joyride 6 out of 10, you know? Now that I think about it, it's called Joyride, but I don't even know if they're ever in a car. They literally, they took planes, trains, boats. They must have been in a car at some point, but yeah, it's a, weird, it's a weirdly misleading title. It's not a road trip movie. <laughs> and then, our last of the kind of new-ish films for the week is No Hard Feelings because female-led raunchy comedies taste of the moment yeah (laughs) and and this one is different and I can kind of talk more about why doing these back-to-back why No Hard Feelings was more to my style it just had less of that completely out there randomness that was just kind of being gross or overly sexual just cause. Just cause. Ha ha ha. Right? Um, it was still... It still had some of it. <laughs> it still definitely had some of it. It was still... Whoa. At times. Um, Yeah. It, it, It's just... I think it's just Hot Girl Summer. And the Hot Girls are doing weird sex comedies. Yeah. It's their turn. Because the boys have done a lot of them. And they're usually just... Terrible, and these ones I'll say are probably better than a lot of <laughs> the other similar kind of sexy comedies I've seen in the past. I mean, you got some classics in there, like Super Bad. Super Bad's pretty fun, but most of them, not so much. Like Road Trip, Porky's, Revenge of the Nerds. These films, just watching them today, are just awful. So bad. I remember I, w- I was doing like a kind of run through a lot of Tom Hanks's career a while back. And I saw Bachelor Party. Oh my god, the most disgustingly shit film <laughs> that I've ever seen. Um, but yeah, no. No hard feelings. Uh, yeah, you feel like Jennifer Lawrence is too old for something like this now, but that's only because she started making huge movies so young that she's only 32 now after a decade at the top of the business. It's what I like to call the Kira Knightley effect. We feel like Keira Knightley must be ancient now, because she's been around forever, but she's only 38 mind-blowing. It really is. Uh, Anyway, Jennifer Lawrence is playing a millennial because she is one, and she's still doing the quirky relatable character thing and having one-night stands, rollerblading about and doing a weird sex thing for an awkward young guy for the summer so she doesn't go broke. And I mean, what a fucking weird movie. (laughs) These rich parents hire her to date their son to give him confidence before college. Uh, She tries to seduce this guy but kind of sucks at it. I mean, she's not terrible at it. He's just that awkward. She does get real kidnappy the first time she tries. But then she gets him on a date. Out in the ocean, naked. And, yeah, creeps him out again. Which is easy, because he's weird. But she's also coming on way too strong, you know? Um, And she has this... There is that one moment, okay? Which is just far weirder than anything Joyride did. She has, when they're out in the ocean, this bizarre full frontal nudity fight scene... With these teenagers who come along to try and steal their clothes, it was weird. She didn't do any nudity the rest of the film, just this one super random, totally naked fight scene. Um, I, I didn't know what to make of it. it. It was kind of funny. but that was that was I felt like that was just totally done for this weird kind of shock value. really weird shock value. Um, in general, the rest of the film's kind of funny. But it does feel at times like, like a like a five minute SNL sketch, you know, that kind of comedy because it is just the same thing over and over. It the comedy of almost every scene that is meant to be funny because some of them aren't is that sh- this guy's awkward and she's trying to fuck him but he's he's so awkward. That's it, you know, and it's like what? But it's Jennifer Lawrence. Why can you not just go for it? It's Jennifer Lawrence. But no, that's that's the comedy, yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it, it feels like, what? If they'd done this as like a five-minute SNL sketch, you'd be like, my God, Jennifer Lawrence agreed to this? The, the fact that it's actually a full feature-length 90-minute film that, that she's agreed to star in is way more bizarre. It doesn't feel so much like an actual Jennifer Lawrence comeback as it does like a... Um, that happened. <laughs> That's bizarre. That happened, um, but yeah, no. Uh, the The rest of the jokes, apart from the weird full frontal nudity thing, they do. They're just kind of silly, funny, wacky. It's not completely out there sex comedy humor. Um, it's not gross out stuff. It's not bizarrely over the top stuff so much. Um, it's pretty enjoyable. It's again, not not half bad at the kind of emotional feelings bit. Um, I do find it hard overall to separate it much from Joyride. I think I do prefer this one. Not a huge amount, honestly. It's it's well put together. Jennifer Lawrence is fun throughout, but... I don't know. It, it didn't do anything for me that I found that amusing or great or interesting beyond what I kind of got and expected from the trailer, you know? So it, it was just... It was just so much what I expected going in, I think, that I was kind of feeling a bit, eh, by the end. And before you say that it's weird having this romantic angle for a 32-year-old woman with a 19-year-old guy, don't forget that nobody had a problem with Jennifer Lawrence at 21 getting with Bradley Cooper at age 34 in *Silver Linings playbook, so take that, patriarchy, or something. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the point is, No Hard Feelings is a fairly funny comedy that, much like Joyride, gets a little weird into eh, levels of comedy at times. No, 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 it's definitely it's it's not as much out there as Joyride. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think I think more than it being a whoa Jennifer Lawrence is like back at the top of Hollywood. It's more of a wow reminder that Jennifer Lawrence is a lunatic, <laughs> a really funny lunatic. But yeah, just a weird one. Um, I really liked the ending, actually, and it was handled with a level of maturity that I didn't expect given the rest of the film. I am I'm happy enough with it, you know. Uh, I think I'll be a l- little bit kind and give No Noord feelings maybe a seven out of ten, maybe borderline, yeah. Um, but overall, it's just a, it's been a bizarre week for film watching. I gotta say. <laughs> It's ranking time! (laughs) Oh boy, it's ranking time. This week we're talking about Mission Impossible, the franchise that found almost as much new life in the 2010s as Fast and Furious. God. This bad boy has gone from astounding new height to astounding new height over the past 12 years, always seeming to be, like, topped out with the new entry, until another entry and the franchise is released and blows everybody's freaking minds all over again. It's amazing. Tom Cruise has been doing this for nearly 30 years, and it, only st- it started a whole decade after the original Top Gun. Like this dude's career is so incredibly long, and he's just stayed at the very top practically that whole time. It is nuts. Um, he's not also doesn't feel like he's winding down anytime soon. Revisiting this franchise, especially the first three, feels weird now, but it is intriguing. So today we're ranking the Mission Impossible movies from worst to best. We're starting with Mission Impossible Two. Yeah, I'll talk about, in a little while, the first film and how that really provides a boost of that, like, 90s throwback. And this was just as much a product of its time, because it is a thousand percent early Notties action movie. Tom Hanks with the shoulder-length hair, hot. The weirdly flirty car chase between him and Dandy Newton in the opening act, nice. And I mean, throwing his exploding sunglasses at the screen (laughs) so they could blow up into the title sequence, marvelous, yeah. I should point out to your listeners that I'm not saying any of this is good. Um, because this is the worst entry in the franchise. I'm just saying it's the perfect edition of early naughty's action things, yeah. Ethan has to stop a terrorist organization from getting a genetically engineered virus. I mean, it, it really doesn't matter what he's doing. <laughs> it's usually pretty much the same idea. Every entry besides the first act has what I like to call MacGuffins of Mass Destruction. So he recruits Sandy Newton, who's a sexy British thief. As, like, 90% of the women are in this franchise. <laughs> but he needs her to do spy things. But she can't do that. She's a renegade, a hooligan, a maverick. Okay. So, um, now she's there and Ving Rhames appears as almost always in this franchise. I-, I forget. Actually, he's probably there pretty much every one, yeah. Um, there isn't much of a team, yeah. Mission Impossible as a franchise is kind of... It's it's the Tom Cruise show but every other f- entry made at least some kind of decent effort at making it seem like a team thing. My theory is that they really wanted to go hard on this franchise after the first one as American James Bond and it almost worked but not really, not really. This does feel very similar in style to the early noughties James Bond films with Pierce Brosnan. It just, it wasn't that good. To be fair, most of the early 90s, <laughs> Pierce Brosnan, Jim Bond films weren't either. But this franchise really started to find itself after this one, in my opinion. It, it, it was nice, you know, him and Danny Newton had good, good chemistry, but um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think one of the differences between this and some of the Pierce Brosnan Bond films is that it, the, the franchise, Mission Impossible's, it's got some pretty good villains, actually. Watching it back through this week, it's got some pretty good villains. Doug Ray Scott was not a good villain. He was just this kind of white man, evil, likes the lady, wants the thing, and, and then he just gets angry at Tom Cruise and goes, Arr! and that, yeah, it just doesn't have a character. It's really annoying. Um, <laughs> the franchise, I think, was a little stuck in the mud with this one, trying to move from the idea of the first entry in this 90s spy thriller to a more action-based franchise. And the transition kind of messed up this film, but was worth doing, because what they had after this was awesome. So, it it does, it, it felt like a sequel. You know, it didn't feel like a franchise at this point. That would come later. This one just kind of felt like a sequel. Um, but going in by helicopter for a super silent, sneaky mission, you know, that was dumb. That was, I, I don't know why, that just that particular moment really bummed me out, the helicopter just kind of hovering above the building for <laughs> a full minute. Mostly, it was fine, just not really great, and definitely by far weaker than any of the other entries. I think I'm giving Mission Impossible 2 a 5 out of 10. Now, the first one. My god, this franchise has been around a long time. <laughs> They were stopping people in the first entry from stealing information off computers using floppy disks. Like, whoa. At this point, it did just feel like a cheeky film adaption of a beloved old-school TV series. It had quite the level of silliness to it. In spite of being like a pretty dramatic spy thriller overall, it just felt a little silly throughout. Um, The complaint about the first trilogy of Mission Impossible films is that Ethan was all alone, but... Uh, that that was kind of the shock and awe of the first one, that he was betrayed and his entire team was killed after 20 minutes, and then he just can't kind of trust anyone. I, It was an awesome, brutal way to kickstart a film, not so much a franchise, and that's what went wrong with the next two films. Um, But yeah, after getting cheekily into the arms of an arms dealer, he sets up his own team, sort of. That was where Ving Rhames first came in, and Jean Reno was in this one. I totally forgot, like, everything about this movie, honestly. Um... But yeah, they do the, here's the impossible heist job, we got to make it through this and this and this and all of that, and it's totally impossible, now let's go do it. That thing, which wasn't as played out in 1996 as it is now, it still was somewhat played out, but it was fine. Um, Then they go to Langley and they do the classic bit where he comes down from the ceiling to steal the stuff off the computer. It's a good one. It's a really good sequence. And there's a lot of good scripting throughout the newer films, but some of the lines in this one were kind of sick. The scene where the IMF guy reveals he thinks Ethan is the mole is weirdly terrifying to watch even now. The line, if you want to dance with the devil I just want to make sure you do it in hell, is so cool. It really, that blew me away. Rewatching I was like, holy crap. Um, the plot overall is a little shitty here and there, it's pretty wack, I'll admit, but this film was, it was cool. You know, slick, very 90s, and does not feel like the same franchise as today's editions at all, it's just so different. It is, it is, it was much more of a spy thriller than like an outright action movie um, until you kind of get to the third act. By the way, third act set on a train, Rewatching that and then watching the new one made me realize, wow, they do love trains in this franchise. Comes up a lot. I love trains and I think train action sequences are cool, so I'm okay with it. Just wow, you know. Um, but yeah, the whole uh, he's the mole and the way that it's him, that was all a little overdone, but it works okay. More than that, some of the stuff in the train finale is really nice, with the helicopter coming down on it, Ethan clinging to it. By the way, Tom Cruise was already doing pretty much all of his own stunts, even back then. What a freaking crazy man. Um, I do like this one even now, but it's clearly a level behind a lot of the newer ones. I'm giving the original Mission Impossible 7 out of 10. It's, (laughs) It's really funny to think that Ethan Hunt had retired by the start of Mission Impossible 3. He left the IMF. I mean, he was still in the IMF, I think, but he was, like, training recruits or something. Um, but, yeah, boy, did he learn not to try that shit on us again. <laughs> like, every time they open the films now, they don't bother doing any new backstory for what's been happening with Ethan in the meantime. He's just somewhere, and someone comes to deliver a mission, and he's just like, yep, <laughs> and goes and does the mission. It kind of feels much more like a franchise, the way they do that now. Much more just like another entry in the franchise as opposed to anything else, but it... Yeah. we can't even complain honestly about how many films he's done since retiring because look at john wick but yeah anyway he was retired at the beginning of mission impossible 3 he had uh, michelle monaghan as a happy nurse wife but when an old friend agent gets taken he can't resist going in to help out and that runs him into philip seymour hoffman who plays one of the best and most terrifying villains you've ever seen in a spy movie Yes, I know what I just said. His performance in this would be an S-tier Bond villain. It's that good. And I love some of the villains in this franchise, but he, he just takes the cake. It is nuts. They go in to rescue the other agent, and it's a good first-act mission. It's high octane and especially the helicopter chase through the windmill farm. That's memorable. It really is. And then they feel, because there was this explosive pellet planted in the agent's head who they were saving. It's brutal. Um, and that's the real weirdness behind this one. It, like, the more recent entries they keep upping the stakes and stuff, and feeling like there's all this drama to the action. But this was the most serious entry in the whole franchise. It was it was kind of overly serious. It took itself a little too seriously. Um, I liked it, but uh, parts of it were kind of overdone. Uh, I think the best bits of that, like, whoa, serious nature were Hoffman's villain. He is so insanely intense. It's amazing, but also just kind of terrifying. Simon Pegg gets introduced, teasing the day when Ethan you know, has a better-built team of characters around him. And it's baffling to me that within the same year of Hot Fuzz coming out and Simon Pegg proving himself to be an amazing badass, he was already getting typecast as the nerdy comedy tech guy in big action franchises. It's only really happened twice that he's got cast in those roles, but between this and Star Trek, he's done the role about eight times. So, anyway, Ethan takes his team to the Vatican. Yeah, breaks in, hot, steals Damien, has an intense showdown on the plane. Then the oh-shit moment comes, and I, you know what, I have to say... When they get betrayed on the bridge and Ethan's, like, sprinting to try and stop Damien before he gets away. And then he's got to go to the hospital to try and save his wife, but she's already been kidnapped. I started to realize how much I'd totally forgotten everything about this entry. And how hard I'd been, like, sleeping on it. Because I massively underestimated this one. I kind of viewed it in my head the same way I view Fast and Furious 4, you know? The main guys were back, you know, it was back to form after kind of shitty entry. But it wasn't on that level yet. It was the transition before it hit the big time. You know, Fast and Furious 5, big time. Fast and Furious 4, yeah, kind of good, but whatever. That's how I thought about this. I thought Ghost Protocols, when this franchise really woke up, became that next level of greatness. This one, it's not there. But it is so much closer to the level of the other films that than I thought. You know, I was really sleeping on this hard. It's awesome. It's got a great... Whole third act to it. Uh it's got a great ending. Yeah, the Vatican sequence is really good. It the bridge sequence is awesome too. And those sequences, you know, are like two minutes apart. It literally has the conversation with Damien on the plane, and then they they land and, and then boom, boom, bang, bang. Bad. Like it's so quick. There really isn't a lot of downtime in this one. Like Dead Reckoning, especially, I kinda noticed like there's a bit more downtime in this than some of the other entries. You know, just between action sequences. And that's okay to cool off. But, yeah, it feels like it's a little longer and it is the longest entry. This one just kind of boom, boom, boom through the through the sequences. Um, so, yeah, it's not a weak entry. It's a very good one. It's not quite. It is still obviously third from the bottom here. It's still below the other ones for me. But it's really well done. Um, and, yeah, Philipsy more often. Man beast of a villain. I think overall I'm giving Mission Impossible 3 an 8 out of 10 it's close to a 9. It's really well done. And then we start getting into the big boys. And look if you'd asked me a week ago I would have told you that Ghost Protocol was my favourite Mission Impossible movie. It's not. It's not anymore. It changed. Rewatching my way through all of these back to back I realised I'd been
1: overestimating
0: this one a little bit and underestimating uh... Rogue Nation and Fallout quite a bit. Yeah. So Ghost Protocol's next in my list. Uh it's redunculous. It's a ridiculous movie. And that's not even a word. It's a beautiful event film. It felt Different, you know? They had a proper team of stars that were well-utilized around Ethan. They had this constant sense of action, lighthearted fun, and real stakes all blended together. I think it was down to Brad Bird reinventing the style of the franchise. That's when it really changed. And he did introduce more, like, goofy elements of the 60s TV show, stuff like that, to this again. That helped. It helped, you know? Bringing the tone back down to a level where they could have comedy action fun to it in addition to the seriousness, helped a lot. And this one, watching it back now, it's a little too goofy. They perfected the style by Rogue Nation, I think, that this franchise really excels at, where it feels serious, but there's still some lightheartedness. This one, it was a little too lighthearted. It was a little too fun and quirky. Michael Nyquist, yeah, not a great villain. Not a great film. No. that That is part of what weakens this one, Rewatching it. It's just... There was nothing to him. (laughs) There really isn't. But overall, all the sequences are awesome, okay? The, The start where they break Ethan out of jail, that was really fun. That was a fun opening. And then the Kremlin bit... Oh, they go in, they get what they want, but then the Kremlin blows up. They all get disavowed. The secretary of the IMF gets killed. It's all a giant freaking disaster. And that's when Mr. Hunt goes to work. Yeah. You ever notice that just every fucking movie they get disavowed? <laughs> Actually, maybe not the second one. Maybe that's the key. Maybe you need to disavow Ethan before he really makes a good movie. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it just happens a lot. But they did well kind of with the big boo whoa in this one. I liked it. Um. There's a crazy boy with a nuke and he wants to use it. That's that's the plot. It, it's not really relevant. He needs to get the codes. Our team doesn't want him to have them. But then they just straight up give them to him. Yeah. And that's after the all, the all awesome sequence in Dubai. Ethan climbs in the outside of the Burj Khalifa. One of the best sequences in the franchise by itself, surely. That was awesome. That's so memorable. Uh, Paula Patton's there with Simon Pegg and with Jeremy Renner. She kicks a woman out of a Window down like a million floors. Tom Cruise gets to run. He loves running. Runs directly into a sandstorm like a lunatic, but loses his man. No, we got a terrorist who can make a big boom, and a third act set up as, I, you guessed it, impossible mission. And that's when they go to India. Jeremy Renner's got this whole past with Ethan's character, which kind of, you know, helps bridge the gap from the original trilogy of films to what's going on now. <laughs> and It's kind of like, no, we didn't just abandon his wife. She, the, He stepped away from her to protect her. yeah. So that worked well. Um, I do think this whole film just feels slick. Just feels slick like the first one did in the 90s. Very different style, obviously, by, by this point in 2011. But it just felt like it still had that, ooh, nice to it that I really enjoyed. It worked really well. And I still love it. I do, I think, no, maybe I was overestimating it a little bit. It's not quite an action movie on the level of some of the very my very top ones that I really love. But it is, it's still awesome. It's still awesome and it still was like a step up for the franchise. Mission Impossible 3 kind of bridged part of that gap. But then this kind of made the big leap. And from here on, this was the new thing. This was this was a whole new franchise for sure. It felt totally different. Um, and it just became beautiful, this franchise from here on out, you know. At the end, they go to India, that whole sequence. It's good. It's a good finale. It's not the best, by any means, finale that they've done throughout. Um, the whole Jeremy Renner just jump thing, and Simon Pegg, it, they did a much better job than they had in previous entries of making other characters feel useful at the end, that was, that was the main thing, it wasn't just a Ethan's gotta see of the day at the end thing, it was a little bit better done than that, and I enjoyed that, but yeah, the tone wasn't quite perfect, and Michael Nyquist, yeah, not anything, really, as a villain, Um, So I can't call it my favorite a lot anymore, but I'm still giving Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol a 9 out of 10. Next is Dead Reckoning Part 1. Yeah, watching the trailer and stuff, I was hoping this would be right up, uh, maybe even at the top for me. But it was always going to be difficult, you know, being the third film I've seen this summer that is only half a movie. There's a frustration to that that you just can't get away from, I'm afraid. Like, it's not as frustrating in those directions because Fast X just felt like a bunch of dumbass side quests that they randomly invented so they could turn this into a two-parter for no reason. And Across the Spider-Verse was brilliant and did amazing things, but then just kind of felt like, Like the end kind of came out of nowhere. This one, it very much felt like they had a third act that was worth a third act and ended it On a good note. That I enjoyed. I I feel like there's not. Like a full film as epic as this one. Left in this story. But I'm sure that there will be enough twists and turns. That they kind of. You know I have faith at this point in this franchise. Anyway. I feel weird giving so many of these 9 out of 10. But they kind of get to this level. They got up here you know. Ghost Protocol is the last one. That was. I mean it was really good. I love it. But it kind of. It didn't have the perfected tone and style. By Rogue Nation, they did. And it's kind of just stayed the same for these last three. Very similar level for me. So it's hard to separate them and pick a favourite. I think, yeah. Basically, this one asks the question, what would happen if Tom Cruise had been around to try and stop Skynet? And the answer is... Arnold Schwarzenegger never would have existed, bitch. <laughs> Ethan starts out disavowed, moves on to being wanted by every world government instead of just his own, and ups the ante to being wanted by a godlike AI-being thing. So now there is more than one species after him. I was unsure at the beginning about this idea, the whole AI thing. As it went on, I became totally convinced this is just the best possible villain for a Mission Impossible movie. It's terrifying, it's everywhere, it's not even human, it's just this presence. It's just what you want. Is it big enough to really deserve a two-parter? I didn't think anything much dragged in this being a 2R45 movie. And if they say that's just half the story, I'm not going to disagree. I'm not going to argue. I don't feel like they did stop dead suddenly. So I'm not too upset. Also, this franchise has just been blended into one story, really, for the last few films, it feels like. And Hollywood's flavor of the month is every franchise gets one of these. So we just have to accept it. Um, So Ethan gets half a key, and the key is the key to the whole thing. Nobody knows what that thing is, though. Everybody literally just wants the key because everybody wants the key. So, (laughs) Ethan wants to get it and use it to destroy the AI that is threatening to take over the world. Ilsa wants it so that the government, just no no government, gets it. And the American dudes want it so the American government gets it. The crazy demon chaos boy, Gabriel, wants it so he controls the AI which is controlling him? Or, I don't know. And Pom Clementeff is also there. And she's scary. There are a lot of people, there's a MacGuffin, and we're off. You know, there's an Abu Dhabi airport sequence, it was great. There was almost a first act nook, that was cheeky. The AI made itself feel terrifying, then there's a huge sequence in Venice with the nightclub and the car chase. That car chase was long and bizarre. Hilly Atwell and Tom Cruise both being shit at driving at different times and switching places and cars and everything, it was weird. Um... (laughs) It was it was definitely the longest sequence. I still don't feel like it overly dragged or anything, but it it was quite a long, drawn out sort of one. It it's not the best car chase or anything they've even done in the franchise. I don't think, but um, overall, yeah, it's great. Most of the characters I love. Haley Atwell's character did bug me for the first two acts. She came around in the third, but the first two acts, I was kind of <laughs> she was just kind of annoying because it got exhausting how many times she would just. Escape and run away, suddenly. And it was just like, come on, learn. You keep getting yourself in trouble every time you run away. Stop it. <laughs> she felt like she took so long to learn that, but yeah. Um, Rebecca Ferguson is back as Elsa, El- Il- not Elsa. And, you know... She feels like she has the predictably no character arc going anywhere except knowing Ethan really well by now. And the way she's trustworthy the whole time in this one tells you that something bad is going to happen for sure. Um, They escape Venice with half the key, but then they got to get on the train. And the train sequence is probably my favorite. The third act, it was awesome. I heard a rumor that there's a two-hour cut of just the train sequence out there, which seems insane. But as a final act, it was beautiful. I should also mention that I accidentally went to a showing time at the cinema that turned out to be a 40X showing, which was nuts. Seat was moving the whole time, water was spraying in my face, stuff stabbing me in the back through the chair. Weird experience. I think I have back problems coming out of it, but I kind of loved it. And it is the perfect sort of film for it. I didn't believe in 40X as a style of cinema showing, but now I I kind of do, actually. (laughs) Only four particular films. This is really the perfect kind of thing for it, especially that train sequence at the end. That is... I couldn't think of anything designed better for 40x, honestly. Um, but yeah, I do feel like it was a weirdly neat place to end this one. Some of the twisted turns were easy to spot, but I feel like it was just another amazing one. At this point, Cruz feels like he can't miss with this franchise anymore. He's become as plot-armored in Hollywood as Ethan Hunt is in the movie. The train sequence was mind-blowing. I loved it. It was good enough to provide a finale for this one, so I'm happy. But I don't think it's the best of the lot. I'm still giving Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, 9 out of 10, though. (laughs) Within four minutes of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation starting, Tom Cruise was on a plane. Not in it, on it. And he actually did that stunt, and it was crazy. And it was in the first five minutes. This film did exactly what it should have done, you know? It tried to put the new awesome team format together with a little spicy love interest for Tom Cruise that became one of the franchise's best characters in Rebecca Ferguson as Elsa, and they had a great villain. They put together all the pieces of the franchise's best bits to that point. The Syndicate as this anti-IMF terrorist organization, their terrifying leader in Sean Harris, who was a cool villain. Not quite Philip Seymour Hoffman, but a cool villain. I love that by this point there are younger agents completely idolizing Ethan because, Jesus Christ, how could they not be? Um, it It just makes sense, you know? So, in this one, the IMF gets completely dissolved. Because everybody wants a bit of Ethan, and while running, as usual, from the government, he's got to fight the syndicate and their scary boy leader. It's also got the best meme in the whole franchise, when Alec Baldwin says Ethan Hunt is living his last day as a free man, and it immediately cuts to six months later. <laughs> that really gets me every time. Um, they go to Vienna, Ilsa and Ethan have a spicy time, and the Austrian Chancellor goes bang bang. The opera sequence is awesome. By the way, Nessim Dorma playing while Ethan tries to handle the multiple snipers aiming at this guy. And then it turns out to be for naught because he gets blown up five minutes later. Oh, it was good. And then they get together with Ilsa and have to break into a data bank in Morocco. And that's when Ethan has to figure out how to hold his breath for an awfully long time. Another amazing sequence follows. I love that at this point Benji is just kind of like, yeah, of course he could do that. And Ethan's like, eh. <laughs> like Benji is the perfect character to keep turning up and assuming Ethan is God and he's kind of right. So he just like sends Ethan to do the most insane shit, and Ethan's like, um, what the fuck? And Benji's just like, what? just do it. <laughs> it's so good. Um, I love their relationship. Uh, Brampton and Luther both show up and the team is complete in time for a third act where everything could go tits up as Benji gets kidnapped Ilsa gets sneaky and Ethan gets his Nicolas Cage in National Treasure moment when he decides to kidnap the Prime Minister of the UK it's a great final act too and that's, that's the nutty thing this one has such a distinctive great first act sequence at the opera great second act sequence in, when they dive into the databank thing and great third act sequence as well it it is so impressively put together, um, and it feels like so much more than any of the previous films. Tom Cruise has this real like spicy gotta outthink this guy relationship with Sean Harris's villain. Solomon Lane is like a good villain. I like him, and I like that they kept him around. They didn't just kill him off at the end so that they could use him in the next one. And that's when this really started to feel like a franchise when they had a consistent female character coming back in Ilsa. When they had Solomon Lee returning, the team was kind of consistent there for like three films in a row. Weird. Weird. But I loved it, yeah. And overall, I'm giving Mission Impossible Rogue Nation 9 out of 10. And I didn't think it could get better after Rogue Nation, but Mission Impossible Fallout used all the threads started in that film and actually just continued it, you know? Instead of just doing a new thing like this franchise normally does, the success of Fallout in continuing those stories is the reason that it went, Oh shit, this could this could be so much bigger and probably decided then when they saw how well Fallout worked and the storyline worked, oh shit, we should we we could have basically done this as a two parter. And then they did a two parter <laughs> to follow it. Um so in Fallout, Ethan has the team with Henry sex god Cavill with a moustache. <laughs> As he tries to recover three plutonium cores before three nooks are set off. That's right, you thought one nook in the previous movies was bad. No, it's three, bitch. He's still got his team. Solomon Lee and is still a scary boy. There are actually references to the early franchise films. Ethan sees his wife in a dream and and then she's there at the end and Vanessa Kirby's character is the daughter of Vanessa Red, Redgrave's arms dealer from the first movie. It's great. Um Fallout brought the whole franchise together beautifully. It really did. And if they'd ended the franchise with this one, it would have been a really beautiful send-off. This, this felt like a great finale, time to leave it. Because it was just building. The whole, oh yeah, we we dismantled the syndicate in the last one, but... Their people are still out there, still working, and now they've, they're working with this new guy. Who is this new guy? This Lark guy. Hmm, mysterious. Who could it be? It was great. I loved it. I loved everything about it. I love the bathroom fight scene. That's iconic already for so many reasons. That early jump from the plane was a great sequence. And then when Ethan finds out he's got to break Solomon out of prison to get the plutonium back, oh, it gets so good. There's great spy aspects to this one. There's great story continuation. There are amazing old and new characters. Then Henry Cavill turns out to be the real bad guy behind it all. and blows your ass out of your mind, or something like that. (laughs) It was kind of obvious that it was going to happen that way, but it was great storytelling anyway. The chase sequence through Paris is great. I think that was maybe the best chase sequence they've done. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Rogue Nation had a great one as well. One of those two had the best chase sequence overall. Not Dead Reckoning's one. Though it was good too. They're all good. Um, A surprising amount of the film... Is spent in Paris. Usually they do one sequence of bedoink themselves to the other side of the globe for the next one. Uh, Tom Cruise also runs in London a lot. He loves running. He runs so much in London that he broke his foot during filming. The number of times he's like jumped out of planes, done parachute jumps, actually piloted helicopters, and it was just running. And well, he did jump between buildings. He was jumping off a roof, I guess. But he broke his foot during that one. They had to delay it all, the whole filming and stuff. Anyway. That was great. London was great. And then third act. Talk about perfect setup. Every member of the team really has to be there and do their thing. Otherwise, big giant fuck. Because you've got the two nooks going off. You have to disarm them at the same time while getting the control thing and disarming that at the same time. You have to press all three at the same time, meaning you actually need a team. You slam Ethan's ex-wife and her new husband down in the middle of the third act to really just give you that extra emotional punch around Ethan, her, and Ilsa. It's great. It really is so great. This whole film... I was way underestimating when I saw it in cinema. Watching it back now, this is definitely the whole, the best of them all, I think. As much as they're all quite close together, like the last four of them, I think this is the best. It's insanely good. Not quite, but almost in the way that Top Gun Maverick is insanely good. It's one of the top three or four Tom Cruise films ever, I think. Completely amazing. Very difficult to beat. I don't think Dead Reckoning 2 will manage it. I'd be surprised, but... Why don't we revisit all of this in, you know, another 50 or so episodes and find out? For now, I'm giving Mission Impossible Fallout a very strong 9 out of 10. Not quite a 10. Top Gun Maverick's a 10. <laughs> yeah. Wait a second. This movie is terrible. <laughs> movies are good, but movies. Are... Oh my god. <laughs> this week, I went in to watch what I thought was going to be a silly movie where there's giant bees and they're dangerous, and what I saw was, wait for it, the worst movie I've ever seen. Okay? I'll... Hmm. That's such a difficult... I've watched so many of these really terrible B-movies, and this, by the way, is a B-movie, but also a B-movie, you know what I mean? <laughs> Tsunami B, The Wrath Cometh, also known in some regions as Wasp Nido. Oh... It's not even a... Yeah. Um, It's just bad. It's It feels on every level and it has no redeeming qualities, okay? It's one of the lowest budget movies I've ever seen. And also, it's about a lot of wasps causing an apocalypse or something. And they may be giant wasps. I can't really even tell because the editing is that level of inconsistently bad. It's also... That bad because... There's massive religious overtones. But by the end of the film... It's not even that it's it's a religious film, okay? That doesn't bother me as much as the fact that by the end of the film... I don't even. I can't even tell where they stand on religion. There's all these religious characters that it, it opens with this random, completely unconnected to anything else that happened in the film scene where this woman just sticks a cross in the ground. And then, right after that, is a biblical quote from Revelations. And even in biblical terms, Revelations is batshit crazy. So if that's what you're basing any of your beliefs off of, you're probably a lunatic. Um, but. I'm not, I'm not even here to bag on religion. I'm not even here to say this is a bad movie because it was religious. I'm just here to say, I don't know what the fuck they were talking about most of the time. And, yeah. But don't get me wrong. It's bad in so many ways. There are, it, it starts with about four completely unconnected scenes. There is that woman putting a cross on the ground. Then there's these people in, like, some rainforest or something. And they see these giant hives and get killed. And then there's this, dream, this guy having a dream where his brother got killed by a police officer and, and then there's this scene where he wakes up and goes outside and there's like his friends are there going, whoa, and the TV's saying there are biblical disasters happening. So there's, there's like all kinds of unspecified biblical disasters happening around the world right now. But we're just going to focus on the beast. <laughs> it then skips to what, you know, the actual main body of the film, which is happening like a day later. And it looks like just the, the apocalypse has occurred or something. But they're out in like the countryside now. And there's this showdown going down between these three who are dressed like... They're all dressed in yellow and black. <laughs> And that's the funniest thing about the film, because you think it's going to be a giant meme. You think these films, oh, they're giant memes, it's, you know, it's Tsunami B, oh, it's... No. It's not, I don't even think, the scripting is so bad it's hard to tell, but I don't even think it's trying to be funny at any point. And it's not. It's not even funny how bad it is. It's just the most depressing thing I've ever seen, okay? Literally. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I know people overuse the word literally. Sometimes I do it, but I'm talking literally the most depressing thing I've ever seen. Other bad movies just don't hit in the same way as this one does. It's so bad. Oh, God. So, the bees turn up. They kill someone, and then they leave. And that just, that just keeps happening. Um, but when they kill someone, they get back up. Because there's nothing like taking a revelations quote so out of context that you can use it to put bees in your film. In that one moment, I've come up with something funnier than this entire film. Because they don't say zombies any time. If they'd said it once, I would have appreciated this film ten times more than I do. So... <laughs> They'll generally spend very little time with the bees. They just come in, kill someone, and leave. And they'll spend most of the time instead talking about religion. Yeah, like, is this the end times and stuff? The characters, there's this guy character. We get, like, no story on him at all, except that he keeps remembering how his brother was killed by a police officer. And they're hanging up with this police officer who's terrible. She just, gets, she just like, is watching some birds in the sky and almost drives them off a cliff and kills them all. Like, (laughs) and that's a whole, that's a longer sequence than any of the sequences with the bees where they're trying to like get out of the car before it goes off the cliff when it's like perched on the edge. And it wasn't like the bees made her drive off the cliff. She was just looking at birds and then went, oh shit. So she's terrible. She also walks into a house, is trying to hunt it down, you know, see if there's anyone in there and immediately gets snuck on my one from behind. She is an awful police officer. She also killed this guy's brother for being black. I don't know. And then when he finds out, He goes to shoot her, but this little girl shoots him first. Like, whoa, thank God, you saved the police officer, who is, as far as we can tell, just a terrible person. She she doesn't really seem remorseful about killing his brother because, like, he was black. So there's that. And uh, they do just kind of suddenly do that after a while. They they kill off all the men in the space of about five minutes, and then it's just these three girls left. There's the little girl who they find in the house, and her dad just kind of says, she's... She's holy. She's protected. The bees won't touch her. Without any explanation. Um, (laughs) There's the police officer, who, as I've mentioned, is awful. And doesn't seem to be a good person. And I don't know why we're happy that she gets saved. And then there's Chica. And Chica is the friend-slash-sister-slash-lover of the main guy. And she is nigerian the act the, I, I had to look it up because i couldn't tell what the accent was the actress is nigerian and i couldn't understand her between the sound quality throughout being that awful and her accent being quite strong and uh, you know not not being a good actress and she just I couldn't understand most of what she was saying. And I re-watched scenes. I prolonged this experience. To be fair, the film's only about 60 minutes long. I prolonged this experience just trying to figure out what she was saying. Because I realized it might be important to the later bits of the film. And I couldn't for some of it. There is a whole bit where the cop asks her about her accent. And she clearly explains something. And I, I caught the words car crash in there. I I think, like, the, she was talking about the guy and how she got to know him or something, but it didn't explain anything. And then her backstory ends up being super important because later, it turns out... Oh, God, the ending. The ending. The three girls are left after they just kind of kill off all the men within five minutes for no reason. And then they pray and the bees go away. Three of them pray and the bees go away. Great. And then they walk outside and then... Chica turns out to be the queen bee and summons the bees back and attacks them and the film ends. And she was the one talking about religion all throughout. So, I don't get it. And also, no. No, it's completely unexplainable. And it doesn't try to explain it. And it's awful. <laughs> and, and I cannot tell because of that what its position on religion is. Because they, like, pray and the bees go away, but they don't. They just come right back because she's the evil one, and she helped them pray for them to go away. And then she just brings them back two minutes later and attacks them. And that's the end of the film. Does Does it like religion? Does it not? I don't know, and I don't care. It is the worst film I have ever seen. It's so bad. I am giving Tsunami The Wrath Cometh 1 out of 10. Hell, I'm giving it one out of a hundred. I am angry and confused and emotionally damaged by the existence of this thing. It's not, it, it's not, it's not even like anywhere near funny how bad it is. Most of these on this segment are. That's why I do this segment, because it's funny how bad they are and I enjoy talking about them. This is just so sad. I hated it. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. Oh, here I go, fan casting again. Fan cast time? Fan cast time. Oh, here we go. <laughs> And finally, this week, if I can recover from that, we're going to talk about what would happen if you made a live-action Grand Theft Auto V film. They've never made a Grand Theft Auto film or anything like that. It's kind of surprising. The genre really—it hasn't had anything big, you know. I mean, like Scorsese still makes movies. Killers of the Flower Moon might still be a kind of gangstery thing, um, and like he did The Irishman. But you don't get a lot of gangster movies anymore. And Grand Theft Auto would instantly be a big hit if they made it into one. And this feels like, just because Grand Theft Auto Five has become so legendary, this feels like it would be the story that they use. But I don't know. Anyway, if they made it, okay, hear me out. We're running a little long today, so I'm going to quick fire this one out. But I'm so excited about it. Michael DeSanta, Mark Wahlberg. Oh, Michael's the main character. He is a bum. He is so upset about his life being boring now, even though we got exactly what he wanted in surviving and getting away and betraying his friends and whatever. And it's really intriguing to see him kind of just get back into the world of crime, not because he's dragged back in or anything, just because he kind of wants to. He kind of just goes, yeah, fuck it, I'd like to, actually. I think Mark Wahlberg would be great at that because he's kind of, he's played a lot of these, like, dad roles who are still, like, action-y anyway. He seems like he'd be good at this kind of, like, oh, yeah, I used to be, like, a gangster badass, but I'm kind of... No, I'd kind of like to still do that. I think he'd enjoy that role. And I think he's got the right level of, like, sarkiness. You know, like, sarcastic prick while still being kind of lovable to a lot of his characters that would work really well for this. Yeah. Trevor is mental. And it's hard to find somebody who could do the right level of insanity, terrifyingly, you know, psychopathic for real, while also kind of being funny about it. I think I'd like Walter Goggins to do it. Walter Goggins, maybe a little bit old for it. No, probably about right. Probably about right. These guys, these two are both meant to be around like 50, right? Michael's got like a 20... 21-ish year old daughter. like. He's gotta be about 50. I think Mark Wahlberg's about the right age. And Walter Goggins is great at playing psychopaths. But he's also done a few roles. I was really reminded of him doing this guest appearance in community, where he kind of he comes off like a lunatic, but like a really funny one. And I think he's one of the few people that is an actual person that I could see like embodying <laughs> Trevor. Unless you were obviously just casting the voice actors. The the Trevor actor kind of looks like Trevor a little bit. You probably could, but I don't really do that when I fan cast. That's why. I try to think of who else could do the role. Um Trevor would be great, and I think those two would play off each other well. And I think if you just made it like outright action comedy, this it would work perfectly. Franklin. Franklin He's a difficult role to cast. I wanted to cast Young, but I couldn't find someone I liked. That was really young, so I kind of went a little bit older since you're casting the other two at like 50. He still comes off young enough if he's like 30. So, I'm casting Daniel Kalua. Kind of based on things like Get Out. In Get Out, he plays this really... Like, this character comes off comedically, but isn't telling jokes so much. He's quite a silent protagonist. He really doesn't talk that much throughout it, but he's really fun character and Franklin is just this young guy. He's not like that smart, but he really learns about this business and how to how to get by as a big time criminal as it goes on. And a lot of it, and I think a lot of the comedy from his character if you were doing this as more of an action comedy would be from just looking at these other two. Just looking at Michael and Trevor arguing all the time and going, "And he's kind of what?" Um, and I think he'd be perfect for that. I think it'd work really well. I think Dino Glue would be great. And from different roles he's done more recently, I don't know, he kind of played quite a similar role to that in Get Out in Nope. It's just the way Jordan Peele likes to have him, I think. Um, he was quite quiet, but when he did a line, it was just kind of like looking at the thing and then going, nope, nope. And I think in the context of a kind of brutal action comedy gangster film, that kind of character would be really funny. So I'd love him to do that sort of thing. Other roles, we've got Lester, who's their kind of computer based tech friend. It's really hard for someone like Lester not just to cast Paul Giamatti. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cast Paul Giamatti. <laughs> Dude is perfect and should have been like in more gangster films. He's the kind of person, like, a little reminiscent of, like, Joe Pesci in a lot of ways, who would have been in more gangster movies if there were more gangster movies. (laughs) You know, in the last, like, 20 years. There just haven't been enough. But Paul Giamatti is perfect for it, and I would love to see him do that role. Lester's kind of perfect. This kind of perfect, like, sarky, irritated, all-the-time guy that Paul Giamatti plays constantly. So, great. Um, The villains, Devin Weston and Steve Haynes. Steve is is a kind of, like, middle-aged, like, quite fed-up, corrupt F.I.B. agent. I'm thinking, like, Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell does good at being, like, quite amusing, even while being a complete prick. (laughs) I love him. I love him. I think he's a great actor. But he's so good at being a complete prick, but getting away with it with charisma. That's kind of what Steve Haynes is like. He's more prickish than charismatic, but I'd like him to be that perfect blending. Devin Weston, on the other hand, oh, there's no one else I would consider casting than Bob Odenkirk. He is perfect. He's so perfect for this kind of role. Everything he's ever done, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. That role is the complete like grifter that I want. In Devin Weston, but Devin Weston's like the billionaire. So he's kind of made it to the top of that now and is now just being a prick about it. That's perfect. <laughs> and also Bob Bob and Kirk, while being that kind of prick in Jimmy or Saul, whatever you prefer, manages to be just so charismatic and so fun to watch. That's what I want for Devin Weston as well. Honestly, Bob and Kirk could play, I would give him almost any role in, in this. I would let him play, Michael. I would let him play Trevor. I would let him play Lester. I think he'd be fantastic at any of this. He, like, I mean, obviously, Better Call Saul was huge, and so was Bring Bad, and he's made a fucking amazing career out of those. But honestly, if if gangster films were still happening any time in the last twenty years, if they were still happening more frequently, I would have wanted him to play every role in every one of them, and it would have been one of the best gangster films ever. If he'd just been the leading role in one, my goodness. Would have been awesome. They haven't totally missed the opportunity. It could still happen. But he'd be, instead of the protagonist, you know, someone getting into the world of crime, he'd be like the older guy. Yeah, he's getting to that age now, I think. But that'd be perfect casting. I'd love that. Um, As for Lamar, who's pretty significant to Franklin's story especially, I think it's a difficult role to cast. I couldn't think of someone I really liked. I I think I like Lakeith Stanfield for it. Based on his role in Sorry to Bother You, uh, he was really good in that. And that was more of what you're looking for for Lamar. This kind of like, he's a bit dumb. Lamar, he's a bit really dumb. He's trying to like make a big-time criminal, but he can't really. He's not really that good at any of this. That's kind of the vibe. Yeah, I think I think Lakeith Stanfield would pull that off quite well. And he's probably around the right age. Him and, him and Franklin are similar age, Lamar, so... Him and Daniel Kaluuya would work quite well together, I think, for those roles. Uh, And then the only other thing you really need is Michael's family, who all crop up quite often. For his wife, Amanda, it's a kind of hard role because she is a very stereotypical kind of blonde, rich housewife cheating with her tennis instructor and stuff like that. I'd like somebody like Rachel McAdams because by the end, you're kind of still meant to be invested in the idea of Michael and... Amanda working it out. I think Rachel McAdams could play someone who's really funny is kind of being a bitch about the whole thing but mostly because Michael's just such a prick as well and then is also still somewhat endearing enough to be redeemed at the end to some degree. I think I think she'd be good at that role. Things that she's done like the Eurovision movie made me think like yeah that kind of comedic weird out there role yeah she could bring that to life quite well. Make him more of a character out of Amanda than the game really ever bothered to do. Uh, And then in his kids, Jimmy is just this complete prick. (laughs) Just this complete dingus, great commercial for condoms, kind of, (laughs) you know. Um, I'd like somebody like Jeremy Ray Taylor, who I think's done a few good roles that would work quite well. I feel like I wanted to cast Jimmy older. Realistically, he is. He's like, he's an adult now, but he's not meant to be like that old, right? Jeremy Ray Taylor's 20, so maybe he's a bit young for it. But only in Hollywood terms. <laughs> Hollywood always casts like at least five years older than they actually are. Until they're 30. I I would like to see him do it. I think he'd be quite good. I would like to be... like I'd like the idea of casting Jimmy a little bit younger maybe. Tracy though, she's meant to be like 21, 22. And she is just this... Especially if they made it as a modernized film today. She would just be like a TikTok star kind of... Really, ugh, character. Uh, I'd like to see Dove Cameron do that one. Yeah, I see that working quite well. I, I think she'd be quite good in a lot of those kind of roles. Not that I'm saying she's just some, ugh, TikTok star, but kind of from her early Disney Channel roles all the way through to stuff she's done more recently, she's played the kind of, ugh, girl, roles that are just really basic and annoying, and I think she'd do something fun with it. And that's all. That's all that I really think you need for that and i think that would be a beautiful film and i honestly with all the game adaptions done recently i think a Grand theft auto movie would probably work quite well and if they did it with these characters with how important and legendary they've become to the franchise i i think it would work really well i'm kind of surprised they haven't already honestly but kind of surprised they also haven't done gta 6. When? Seriously. (laughs) That's all for this week, guys. It was a pretty long episode, but, God, I got really excited about the Mission Impossible movies and really frustrated about Tsunami. Just a whole mess. Uh, Look ahead to next week's episode. Um, We'll be handling... I didn't get to see Talk To Me yet, so I'd like to see that. I've heard a lot of good things about that horror movie. The Meg 2 debuted already on Rotten Tomatoes with a 0% score. We'll see about that. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. I've heard some really good things about it. So I'm excited for that too. We'll also be checking out The Shark Exorcist. Because I'm I'm hoping that can't be as bad as Tsunami. And uh, we're going to be ranking a lot of the 2023 Netflix films that have come up so far. So tune in for that episode next week. Thank you guys for watching. I hope you enjoyed. And remember, movies are good. Even though oh, some movies are so fucking bad. God damn it. <laughs>